Hello and welcome to Signal Path, a podcast series by Shaw, which follows the pivotal moments that form the way artists think about sound. In this new series, we'll be chatting to the musicians, producers and sound artists who are pushing audio culture forwards, hearing about the standout musical moments that have made them who they are today. I'm Zaki Asul, and in this episode, I'll be talking to Gazelle Twin, a.k.a. Elizabeth Bernholtz, a composer, producer and singer whose music blends unsettling electronics with folk horror, sacred harmony and political commentary. Hey, Elizabeth, how's it going? How are you? Hi, Zakia. Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Yeah. So, as you know, in this series, we're really looking at the moments that have shaped you as an artist, the moments that may have changed the way that you think about sound and about performance. But let's let's start at the beginning, and perhaps you can tell me a little bit about your your upbringing and when you first came to music. Yeah. I was very lucky in my childhood to grow up in a a really nurturing, creative household with both parents, sort of trained artists and really musical and music lovers um, and siblings who were equally creative. And when I say music, it was mostly classical music that my mum and dad played um, and jazz. So they had kind of a quite a good stack of cassettes and, and records that I remember them playing when I was a baby. So yeah, we had a piano, we had kind of everything that, that you could want really. So I was able to to experience music and make music from an early age. And I went to a primary school that had an incredible setup in terms of they had a whole orchestra, they had a whole choir, they had instruments that you could learn to play for free, um, all kinds of amazing things that, you know, I don't even think a lot of primary schools today would have. Just thinking back over my childhood, I had a real, really privileged upbringing in terms of like having access to this stuff and being able to just try stuff out and express myself through music and and art from a really young age so it's always kind of been there really for me. So do you want to tell me about that that first moment that you remember as kind of foundational in in your journey in music? Yeah so um, when I was thinking about this first moment um, there were a couple that I could have chosen from but um, in terms of sort of where I began as um, a performer and sort of starting to take music as my kind of power in life and my kind of sense of myself, um, it was at my primary school. And at the time, um, all through school, um, beginning at primary school, I, I struggled a lot in terms of my um, confidence and my sense of self um, and basically I, I found myself very f- feeling very awkward and very at odds with you know the world and and my my peers and I think through music I discovered something that couldn't be taken from me and it was the sheer kind of um 
enthusiasm and dedication that I had from teachers at the time, who, two of whom in my school were, were, were trained musicians, which is quite also quite a rare thing. And they saw me. They just saw me. They saw. They knew my shyness, they, but they knew my create, creativity and they knew my um, my sort of ability with music. So they saw me and they encouraged me. And um, when I was sort of doing my flute lessons, we we got a chance to do quite a few school concerts and <laughs> a few gigs. And um, uh, my first one of my first gigs was um, yeah, it was I think I did a solo. Um, along with some um you know like ensemble performances with my my friends but um I just remember standing on that stage I can remember it in full you know Technicolor and just having that piano intro and then just starting and just knowing my parents were there and just it was a full uh, full assembly hall full of parents and just feeling that buzz I actually still have um, a video that was made in 93 and filmed on a really old video camera. So it's on a really wobbly, fuzzy VHS tape. then at the end getting a really great applause and at the end having kind of a lot of praise from parents that I'd never met and from teachers and just just feeling like that kind of real glow of wow I've done something and I've moved people and I did that you know just by myself just with my flute so and and I think you get addicted to that. So when did you decide uh, that you were going to pursue music obviously you know you were kind of seven or eight then <laughs> and um, maybe you decided it then but you know when did you when did you sort of take that seriously when did you decide that you wanted to become a musician a performer and started to make your own music I think then I think I think in my head I was going to become a, a flautist and professional flautist and performing orchestras and then you know have a golden flute and wear beautiful dresses and stuff in, in the Royal Albert Hall that's you know that's what I what I thought was going to happen and then, um, you know, I never it never really went away. I think when I started my secondary school, the flute dropped away. It was no longer, you know, not a very cool instrument. And um, I think I had a teacher I didn't like. And um, I just kind of, yeah, became a teenager and just wanted to do other things for a bit. But I never stopped making music. I had a little synth um, in my room that I used to still kind of make stuff on. And just through my teens when things got pretty rough for me, at secondary school, um, following on from just the, the stuff that happened in primary school, it just kind of went on a long time. Um, I just retreated to my room and I retreated to music and it got darker and darker through through those teenaged years. And um, I was, you know, I was listening to Porter's Head and Rage Against the Machine and all that kind of like Radiohead, all of that kind of really dark, gloomy stuff. But I was kind of making my own version of it and um, didn't perform any of it to anyone just played it on my headphones to a few friends and stuff but it was lingering but I didn't really have the confidence I didn't really find myself until yeah my late teens. And do you feel like there was a kind of direct connection between those difficult experiences that you were having and then that kind of 
that almost um, haven, you know, as you describe you kind of in your room, just making music, creating that kind of healing, transformative aspect um, of music making. Do you feel like, you know, those two things were, were connected for you? Yeah, absolutely. And, and essential, really. I mean, I'd get home from school after a really bad day, for example, and I would just, you know, chuck my headphones on and get my synth on my lap on my bed and just start, you know, noodling around. And I just think that there was something in the release of that, obviously an emotional release, um, but also just the, the tactility of it too. I mean, um, I used to really love messing around with cassette tapes and it's just all of those little really basic sort of playing around things that, that actually just, they build your skills, but at the same time, they're just kind of helping you occupy your thoughts um, when where they might be turning somewhere a little bit dark. So, so yeah, it was my, ref, my little refuge really. Absolutely. So tell me about the next moment that you've that you've selected. I went through three odd years of, of studying um, contemporary music at uh, Sussex Uni, um, which was which was great. And I really enjoyed it. Um, and I managed to kind of do a fair bit of composing, actual composing and things like that. But I came out of uni feeling still not quite myself and, and still a little disillusioned with where to go next. So um, I kind of found myself craving performance again and, and just wanting to get back to basics, almost wanting to get back to my teenage bedroom and just kind of rattle stuff out on a, on a keyboard and not really worry about, it, you know, scoring or kind of concert halls or, you know, anything like that. I was just, I just kind of had that craving to just go back to basics. But it wasn't until I saw a performance um, at, at one of these festivals in Brighton that I really realised what it what it was I was trying to kind of get towards with with how I wanted to present myself as a, as a as an artist and the kind of music that I just felt that I wanted to channel. And um, I saw Fever Ray perform and it was the first Fever Ray album at um, the Corn Exchange in Brighton. And I'd just done a gig earlier that day as as myself, without any costume on, just as kind of a, a synth, sort of really simple synth setup, and, you know, me kind of on stage feeling awkward and wrong. Um, and then I saw this performance in the evening by Fever Ray and it just kind of came over me like a tidal wave. It was incredible. I just saw these strange costumed creatures coming out of the dressing room onto the stage in pitch black with these incredible green lasers firing out over the crowd and just heard this incredible drumbeat and this incredible voice coming out of this person who didn't look like a person it looked like this kind of tent <laughs> she had this like huge headdress which just covered her entire head and made her look huge and then just kind of went to the floor and all you could see was her, her hands kind of appearing out of this this strange costume and, and this voice kept coming out, which just sounded like nothing I'd really heard before. And it was just like an instant, like, ah, right, yeah, this is 
this is it. This is everything that I've wanted to feel. And it just showed me that you don't have to perform as a woman. <laughs> you don't have to perform as anything. If you don't want to, you can take it anywhere you want. You can you can go as crazy and, and, and weird as you want to. And, you know, if when you do, it, it can be incredible. It really changed everything for me. And is that is that when Gazelle Twin was was born for you? It it was it, it was in terms of like knowing that I didn't want to have to compromise anymore, and in terms of knowing what direction I was going to take. In that I was not going to, I was no longer going to show my face, or I was no longer going to be me on stage. Yes, but I mean the music had been coming long before that. The music had been you know bubbling up, you know, my whole life really before that. Um, but certainly in the years before that, I was, you know, I ended up releasing music on my first album as Gazelle Twin. I released, I'd started writing that music um, a couple of years before. So, um, yeah, it, it was just one of those moments where everything slightly came together. Like the music for me was was there, actually, um, in terms of what I wanted at the time. Um, but, the, but, the, but the whole presentation and the whole kind of performance wasn't the whole kind of element of myself and the awkwardness that I felt on stage and and also just the pressures of of um performing as a young woman you know I was feeling everything I was feeling you know kind of like a whole that my whole history of feeling awkward um the whole kind of culture of um you know perfection and expectation and fashion and I, and I just did not want any of it I did not want it to get caught up with my music. I just wanted the music to be the thing that was the, the central focus and then everything else to sort of fall in and become part of that and not be, um, yeah, not be kind of attached to too much. So tell me a little bit more about your kind of, about this alter ego and about your use of disguise. I mean, you kind of touched on it that you kind of, this this alternate version of you, you know, and this, you know, performing under your own name as you, as a very different experience from performing as Gazelle Twin, but with with a mask, um, with this kind of freeing uh, costume. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about about the, the, that kind of alter ego and, and what you feel it, it brings or enables um, in your performance? Yeah, I mean, um, it's changed over time. Um, but I remember the first feeling um of doing a show with my face covered and and being kind of built up in a costume really really rudimentary costume the first one um it was really really like a made out of an old curtain and some wigs or something <laughs> but <laughs> um I remember feeling the most powerful I'd felt in in a public situation for forever um, and I, I, I likened it to being, you know, Halloween, like being able to dress up in Halloween in masks and how you can get into character and you're not yourself for a bit. And it's like having a little holiday from yourself and it's brilliant. Um, and I felt the same on stage, but it, it took it another level. It was almost like the performance for me became more enjoyable. I could I could become more immersed in the music without kind of feeling aware of myself. And I could get into sort of some sort of strange character. I could allow myself to be overcome by the music more than I would if I was just, you know, me. So the first performance I did actually was at a place called Shunt in London. It was this weird underground, um, amazing underground venue where there were loads of art performances and gigs and uh, bars. And it was kind of this strange place. Um, I remember hearing people as I came onto the stage saying, oh, is that who? What is that? Is that? is that a woman or is that a man or what? And I remember thinking, ah, oh, yeah, this is cool. 
Amazing. Um, and I wanted to ask you as well, obviously you've got the kind of physical disguise, the, the costume um, that you perform with, but also, you know, the way that you manipulate your voice is part of that disguise. And you've touched on, you know, the expectations um, perhaps that you felt as a, as a female performer, but particularly, you know, the way that women's voices are supposed to sound. You're, in your music, you're completely distorting and... Um, and kind of rewiring that expectation. So, you know, what what is the significance of that for you? Yeah, that's yeah. You put it really well. Um, the expectation for women's voices. I mean, in the mainstream, we know what that is, don't we? I mean, we know there's there's you know there's pop voices, there's sweet singing. Um, you know, it's it's not usually about power and about command with women I mean that there, there's there's soul singers there's there's incredible voices and power from from all kinds of women's voices but for me with the voice that I was given um which was you know kind of a a, a soprano voice <laughs> um definitely quite sweet and gentle at times I was just ready to change that really and I was ready to explore a different side of it and myself and and I loved being able to pitch down my voice and sound sort of demonic, demonic and frightening. And it just opens you up to this this other world of of expression, really. And also, I found it pretty handy for the, the, the way that I started to write, which was kind of multiple voices, multiple personalities, really, that were just sort of starting to come through the music um, and through this microphone facilitating my my kind of split personality <laughs> um yeah just just letting letting all this stuff come out really and and over time over over a few albums it's it's become more and more crazy <laughs> I guess it goes back to what you were saying about this sort of healing power of music or this you know ex expression and what you're able to let out so if you're able to let it out through this alter ego through this you know this alternate voice I'm sure there's more there's more that can escape <laughs> yeah yeah totally I mean I've it's you know we know we know we can go into trances as humans we know that there are there are rituals that happen and have happened for forever um where we can channel things channel energies that we don't really know much about or we don't really understand or we're not even in control of and I'm not saying I go in some sort of shamanic trance every gig, but it's I, I I don't think it's far away from that. I think it's kind of charging along those same lines where you're drawing on something that isn't just about the here and now. It's about it's about the energy of a crowd and it's about your past and it's it's about everything that's happening um all of the time and singing and performing is is amazing for that. And it's it's definitely healing. Absolutely. And, you know, I've, I know when I've been in audiences, I've been in crowds and I've witnessed performances and seen artists when they are absolutely in that mode. And you feel you feel it. It's it's contagious. Mm. Can you give me a sense of when this was happening? Was this sort of around the time of the release of your first album or was this a little bit further along in your journey? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I released my first album in, in 2011, but I'd been releasing a couple of things from it um the previous years and I'd started to kind of test out how I was going to perform the stuff so it was kind of um it was a gradual process and I was um I still am and I was then an unsigned artist 
yeah, so I was just kind of trying to get to grips with releasing my own music and kind of what the processes were for, um, you know, composing, recording and then and releasing music because it was this kind of whole new world to me, really. Um, and I was able to release another album, um, which was called Unflesh, uh, and I released it in 2014. Um, I wrote Unflesh over a couple of years and that album, I think, was probably the consummation of everything that I'd kind of gone through in my teenhood and childhood in terms of, of terms of personal trauma and all of the things that I'd learned um, from music and all of the skills and, and ideas that I'd kind of built up um, to that point. So um, so Unflesh really for me is kind of and probably will always be my kind of precious, <laughs> my precious album because it was incredibly raw, um, very, very personal. I was literally coming out telling telling the world about stuff that I hadn't even spoken to my mum about, you know, when I was a teenager. So it was a really, really intense thing that I hadn't even planned to really to, to write. It just sort of came out of me. And I was then lucky enough to have a really, really great response from the album. And I was then able to tour and I did a sort of two year tour really of of unflesh with my with my partner Jez and just had the most incredible experience where I just felt like I was doing something right and felt like I was kind of kind of winning for a change (laughs) (laughs) winning at life for a bit yeah were there any particular standout moments or really kind of memorable stories from from that period from that that journey because two years two years of touring that's that's a long time that's quite intense yeah it was it was I mean it was it was on and off it wasn't kind of like continuous dates so we did quite a few in Europe and then we we ended up having the chance to go um around America and north north uh, Canada and did about two week two or three week tour around there and and that that's the kind of tour that that will always sort of stick in my in my memory really because we did some shows some absolutely nuts shows there where I mean and I'm nuts not in a necessarily in a good way nuts in a kind of where are we why are we here (laughs) sort of experience um but nevertheless had we gave it everything every gig even though some in some gigs there were like three or four people and it was just it you know it was it was a brilliant opportunity but it was it was incredibly like sobering at times um but despite the kind of wobbliness of it all I don't think a show went by where we didn't have an encounter with a young person after the gig who who just came and kind of poured their guts out poured their heart out to us and thanked us for for coming to do the show like it was it was one of those really emotional because because the album was so emotional and it was very much about teenage emotions and, and somehow it had reached these people you know in the far reaches of midwest america and they'd come along to this show in like one of them was in a place called um springfield um, a town called Springfield. I can't remember the other name of the other one we did. We did two shows in Missouri. And I remember just this one show where, again, it was sort of five or six young people who'd come along to the show. But at the end, one of them, who's, who's a young guy, was just crying. He was just crying, <laughs> crying at me and just saying, thank you so much for coming here. You have no idea 
you know, like how desperate we are to hear music like this. And, you know, this never happens. It's amazing that you're here. And and I was just like, whoa, this is this is really, really intense and amazing. But the whole context around that is that you know, a lot of the, the young people that we spoke to um, gr- growing up, obviously, in, in, in parts of America that are just completely off the chart crazy <laughs> in terms of like draconian culture and and religion and dog really dogmatic kind of um structures and having their education edited out by religious fanatics basically and having kind of really awful encounters with police surprise surprise and um it was really we heard so many upsetting stories when we were there and saw a lot of upsetting things when we were there I, I i felt like i was i just couldn't believe i was in america it was it was really really eye-opening and i'll never forget the faces and the people that we spoke to after that tour because it just it just made me feel like I'd been doing something right and that my music was not just there for me it wasn't just you know a tool for me to expel my own demons but it was there to kind of gather other people in that kind of in that spirit really and to help help them in some way or, or so so they said um so I felt I you know it's just something I never expected to ever achieve well, oh, it gives me gives me shivers just just hearing about it. Um, so the final moment that you've picked brings things a little bit more up to date. So you've chosen a piece of yours from twenty twenty. Um, tell me about why you've you've chosen this piece. This piece is from a soundtrack that I made for a film, um, and it's the first score that I have ever done as a composer um, to a film called Nocturne. And um, I worked on it from 2019 through 2020. So just when the pandemic hit and then we all kind of had to work remotely, it just ended up being really lucky timing for me. And I, it was just like a really enjoyable experience. I was really, really, ha- really, really happy to be approached to do it by the director, Zoo Quirk. And um, it was like the perfect gig for me, really. It was kind of set in a music school <laughs> and I had to kind of frame a sort of classical a classical musical context with what I do electronically and it was it was just a really great um, first score for me to, to be able to do. Just hearing you talk about that and sort of, you know, the idea that it was in this music school, it's kind of making me think back to, you know, what you described, your vision as a child of you being this sort of, you know, with your golden flute, you know, playing classical music in a long flowing dress and then the kind of alternative vision, the demonic shaman-like, you know, blue hoodie (laughs) performer and, you know, almost seeing these kind of parallels or looking back you know when you when you look back across your musical journey I mean how does it make you feel and and when you look forward to the future I mean where where do you see yourself going? It's funny how I started out sort of 
wanting to study music in order to be a composer and ideally a, co- a composer for film um kind of gave it all up really gave up the idea very quickly carried on just doing something different and in and, and my own way and then ended up kind of coming back to it as a profession which is it is incredibly lucky and I'm really really happy that it's turned out that way um so yes yeah, so I've, I've I made a couple of film schools in the last um couple of years and I'm now also um just at the moment just at the very beginning of working on a tv series um which is also incredibly fun and brilliant and and just so I'm just lucky to call it job really because it doesn't feel like work most of the time and during lockdown actually I just had my my second baby and then I ended up having the opportunity to to chat to Trent Reznor um he'd got in touch through management and um wanted to have a chat with me on the phone but none, none of us knew what it was about so I had to sort of arrange this phone call with him um and I just remember I was sitting in the room that I'm in now talking to you and um, had my dressing gown on and the baby was asleep <laughs> and um, there was this voice at the other end of the line it was Trent Reznor and it was really crackly so I couldn't really hear what he was saying but it's just this really like oh hey Elizabeth uh, this is Trent <laughs> and uh... <laughs> but yeah they they invited me basically to remix um, a Halsey track because they'd produced her album. And invited me to remix one of the tracks, which just, it just blew me away. I was like, how, how is this possible? How do you even know who I am? Like, this is men- mental. Um, so that, I, I think that was just the point where I just thought, oh, you know, the world opens up, you know, yeah, when you open up, you know, sometimes the world opens up and it, it felt like all the decisions that I'd made kind of since just setting up Gazelle Twin really was, was kind of along the right track. I love that. When you open up, the world opens up. Well, thank you so much, Elizabeth, for your time and for sharing your moments with us. And um, yeah, I'm excited to see what what comes next. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for, for inviting me. I'm Zakia Sewell, and you've been listening to Signal Path a podcast series by Shaw. This episode was recorded remotely with the SM7B and Beta 8 microphones. 